We are, we are really shaky up here. We're literature lovers at our house. My mom was an English major in college, and you know, I'm the flunky of our family, actually. I'll be the only one without a college degree. Uh, of course, Dan, I tip my hat to Dan for, for uh, pursuing it out, but we've got tons and tons of books at our house. We built a library and put all this shelving up, and you know, when you install it, it, it looks like there's no way you'd ever fill that, but the shelves are filled, you know, and the boxes are still, the books are still in the boxes, so we're literature lovers. You know, one of the things in literature that you see over and over again is this issue of mistaken identity. I'm thinking especially of folks like Shakespeare, where they, storylines revolve around a, a mistake about who someone is or what someone is. So sometimes that's male versus female gender, or it's uh, uh, an espoused, or it's a stranger, or whatever, but mistaken identity is a big thing in literature. In T.H. White's The Once and Future King, I'm just curious, how many people have read this? A few? Okay. It's, uh, it's a version of the Arthurian legend, and uh, one of my favorites, I think it's one I read about 30 years ago, but in it, uh, young Wart... Uh, not a very respectful name, right? Young Wart is the page that is the helper of Kay, who's the son of Sir Ector. And Arthur Wart is on one hand kind of told that he's the son of Ector, but he knows he's really not, and everybody else knows he's really not. And his role is to be Kay's helper, and he's kind of got this ignominious role this role of no respect, he's kind of the runt, he's boxed about the ears once in a while, he does the dishes. But one day all of that changes because while he's looking for a sword for Kay so he can participate in the tournament and he's lost his, he sees one at what he thinks is a war memorial in town. So he goes up and sees a sword in a stone and he pulls the sword out and he brings it to Kay And Kay looks at the sword and takes it to his father and initially tells his father, I have the sword, I drew it from the stone. And his father looks at him and says, Now, I love you and I'm always proud of you. Now tell me the truth. Did you pull this from the stone? And he has to say, No, Wart did. And of course, the implication is this. It says that whoever pulls that sword out of the stone is the rightful king of England. And what no one knows here is that Arthur, Wart, is actually the son of Uther Pendragon, the last king of England. But when he pulls the sword from the stone, everyone now knows, whatever his identity was assumed to be before, everyone now knows Wart is really Arthur, and Arthur is really the legitimate king of all England. So, mistaken identity. If you think of another one, I had to brush up on my literature yesterday while I was looking these up. Great stories, by the way. Uh, Odysseus in Homer's Odyssey. You know, you've got this uh, king of Ithaca who goes out to the war at Troy, but he doesn't, doesn't get home, right? For a couple decades, for 20 years, he has these odysseys. But eventually he makes his way home, only when he gets there, uh, things aren't quite what they were when he left, and he chooses to change his appearance to see the lay of the land. So instead of looking like the strapping warrior king he was when he left, he dresses as a peasant. He looks like an old haggard man. And he hangs out in his own court and he listens and he sees what's going on. And he's assumed to be an unworthy fellow. 
and a penniless pauper until he takes the challenge that his wife, Penelope, issued to all these would-be suitors who are eating him out of house and home, that if they can bend his bow and shoot an arrow through the hole in 12 axe heads stood up in a row, she'll marry that person. And all these strong warrior guys in his court try the bow and none of them can. But when the old peasant fellow stands up and strings the bow, effortlessly apparently, and shoots that arrow through 12 axe head holes, axe is a little different than ours today, uh, everyone knows who it is. It's Odysseus, it's not a peasant. It's Odysseus and he's come home to claim his wife and his home and his throne. And in both of these stories, and of course in others besides, what you have is someone assumes someone is something and someone less than they really are. And it's only later that time and occasion show them for who they really are. And, and to mistake them and to hold on to the mistake uh, is something you don't want to do, as we'll see this morning. Last week, when we started a series of Christmas messages, we looked at the fact that Jesus came to Israel as their Messiah. And it was sort of along the same line, mistaken identity. He didn't look like the Messiah they thought they were waiting for. And so he was rejected. And we, we saw that last time, mistaken identity. He's, he seems to be one thing, but doesn't fit our picture. And so we don't believe he's the Messiah. The truth is, of course, that Jesus really was the Messiah Israel was waiting for, and He was the King of Israel, even though He didn't look like it in this incarnation, in the first coming. But when you read both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's absolutely no doubt that Jesus was the promised King, the promised Messiah. And the point I want to harp on a bit this morning is, he was the fulfillment of a promise to David that one of David's sons would be a king whose throne and kingdom would last forever. And I would argue that much, if not most, of the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus actually can be best seen through the lens of the covenant God made with David in 1 Chronicles 7 and 2 Samuel 7 in which God made a promise to David that one of his descendants would sit on a throne and rule a kingdom that would last forever. You guys remember about 1000 B.C., Saul's king, first king of Israel. This is history, Matt. This is the good stuff. Saul's king of Israel, not a very good king, and he makes some blunders, and God says, I'm, I'm done with you as king. I'm going to replace you. And he, So he sends Samuel the prophet down to Jesse's house in the city of Bethlehem. And Jesse's got all these strapping sons. Some look pretty kingly. But God tells Samuel to go to that little guy, that youngest guy, the guy who comes in smelling of the sheep, very last of all, the youngest. He doesn't, he's not strapping. He's not big. And anoint him king because he's God's choice for king. And then, of course, David has God's success. God's favor is with him. Saul's eventually killed in battle. David takes over the kingdom. He defeats his enemies. He establishes the kingdom of Israel. God's with him. And one day when David is sitting in a palace made of cedar, he's in a luxurious palace, he looks around and says to himself, something's amiss. I'm in a palace of cedar, and the Ark of the Covenant, that is God's house, is sitting in a tent. 
And if I'm in a house, certainly God should be in a house as well. I shouldn't have better digs than God has. So I'm going to build God a house. When we read in the Old Testament temple, it generally just means a house, a house for God. David says, I'm going to build God a house. So he tells Nathan the prophet, this is my idea, I'm going to build God a house. And Nathan says, David, it's a great idea, God's with you, you should do that. But later when God meets with Nathan, he tells him something else. And this is what Nathan goes and tells David. You shall not build a house for me to dwell in. David, you want to build me a house? You're not the one to build me a house. You're not going to build me a house. This is First Chronicles 17, 4, and then from 10 and following. At verse 10, he says, Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. You won't build my house, but instead I'll build your house. And when your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers, that is, you lay down and die, you join them in death, I will set up one of your descendants. This is the same word for seed in Genesis, in the opening chapters of Genesis. It's singular, that is. We read it plural, but it's actually one of his seed, singular. I will set up one of your descendants after you who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, he will be my son. I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who was before you, that is Saul, but I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne will be established forever. So David's idea is, God, I'm going to build you a house. And God says, no, you're not. I'm going to build you a house instead. I'm going to make one of your descendants a king who's going to rule over a kingdom forever. Now, most commentators will focus on the fact that uh, kind of a short-term fulfillment, this gets a little sticky depending on how you interpret Scripture, single fulfillments, multiple, near and far, but Commentators generally say, look, uh, God promised a king to David and the king would build God's house. And so we look and David has a son, many sons actually, but Solomon takes the throne in his place. And what does Solomon do? He builds a house for God, Solomon's temple. And it's the place God dwells with the nation of Israel for several generations before it's destroyed. So most commentators focus on Solomon as the fulfillment of this promise. The problem, of course, is this. Solomon's throne exists no more. Solomon's kingdom is no more. Solomon hasn't had a son on the throne for at least 2,000 years. If this promise is going to be kept, it's a kingdom and a throne that are established forever. And so while we could look at Solomon and say, on one hand, Solomon sure looks like maybe a picture or a shadow or a type, I don't believe Solomon can be the fulfillment of this promise to David, which means, since God cannot lie, that after Solomon there would have to be another descendant of David who would sit on his throne judging Israel as the son of David. This promise, this is a covenant to David. It's one of the primary covenants, by the way, in the Old Testament. Uh, to fulfill a covenant made to David, an unconditional covenant to David, that one of his sons would be a king who would rule forever. If you look throughout the rest of the Old Testament and you frame the prophetic passages that have to do with, for instance, in Isaiah, uh, a king who would come, and we'll see a little bit of this uh, here in just a minute, you can see the fulfillment or, or more of the promises about a descendant of David 
as a king that would come and would rule Israel, as the Messiah who would come and deliver Israel. But all of these tie back to these passages because all of these are tied to the person who would be David's son, the son of David. It's a messianic title. It's used in the New Testament elsewhere. They all tie back to this covenant and this promise that David would have one who would sit on his throne and judge the tribes of Israel and larger. So the Old Testament, we start with a covenant, but then you can uh, use that lens of this promise made to David to see that the king and the, the deliverer and the savior and the Messiah that God promises elsewhere are all tied to this same person, the son of David. When you get to the New Testament and the stories that we're more familiar with, with Jesus's birth on the earth, it's clear that Matthew and Luke both want us to understand the same thing, and it's this. Jesus is the physical descendant of David. He is, if he's not the son of David, that is the Messiah, he's at least a son of David. That is, he's a direct link straight back to David. So, for instance, in Matthew's genealogy in Matthew 1, uh, Matthew's tracing Joseph's genealogy, so this would be Jesus' stepfather, as it were. But Matthew starts by saying the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew says right off the bat, Jesus is the son of David. He then traces through up to verse 16, the genealogy back from, or excuse me, forward to Jesus through Joseph. At verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Um, Adoptions treat a little bit differently for us today than it was in the ancient world. But you guys know that if you adopted a person, for instance, if a Roman adopted a non-Roman, you see this in the movie Ben-Hur, the adopted person, typically a son, he took on all the rights of the parent. He became the heir. We, we don't tend to think in these, in these views today. He became the heir. He assumed all the rights, all the privileges of the adopting parent. And that's the thought here. Joseph was Jesus' adoptive parent. And so it's legitimate for God to show us that through his stepfather, through his adoptive father, Jesus traces his lineage right back to King David. Joseph was David's direct descendant. Joseph had, if you will, a claim on the throne of Israel. And certainly his son Jesus did as well. If there's any ambiguity left in Luke 2, verse 4, Luke tells us the same thing. The census is commanded. And so Joseph went up from Galilee, where he's living up in the northwest, from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. Where does David come from? Bethlehem, that's his city. That's where Joseph, who was a, his direct descendant, went down to register. Luke has a genealogy in Luke 3, which is actually Mary's genealogy. So in Matthew, Matthew shows us that through his adoptive stepfather, Jesus traces his lineage straight to David. And then Luke tells us in Luke 3 that biologically, through Mary, Jesus traces his lineage straight back to David as well. In Luke's lineage, you'll see uh, Jesus doesn't come from Solomon. Uh, because Mary doesn't come from Solomon. They come from Solomon's brother, Nathan. But Nathan was David's son as well. So through Mary, Jesus is also biologically a direct descendant of David. And so Jesus is, if, is, if nothing else, 
a son of David, if not the son of David. But Matthew and Luke want us to make sure we get it. Jesus is in the straight line. He's a straight descendant of David. When you start reading the gospel stories, this issue of this claim to be the son of David, the promised king, comes up again and again and again. I'll quote Matthew most prevalently this morning because Matthew, of all the gospel writers, wants Israel to know Jesus is the promised king. So he makes more use of the Old Testament uh, prophecies than any of the others. In Matthew 3, when Jesus is baptized, which is a great passage for, for lots of other reasons, in verse 17, when Jesus comes out of the water, do you remember what the Father says from heaven? A voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, we could talk about this from other vantage points, but think of this. Jesus is starting His earthly ministry. He's presenting Himself as the Messiah to Israel. And the first thing that happens is God says, This is my Son. Now, why is this important? Because for the prophecy about the Son of David to be fulfilled, the Son of David also has to be the Son of God. Psalm 2, in a great... A piece of literature where mankind says to God, we're throwing your chains off of us. And God says, ha ha, that's funny because I've got different plans and I've got a king and I'm going to set him on my throne. In verse 6 of Psalm 2, God says, I have already installed my king on Mount Zion. That is Jerusalem, my holy mountain. And God's king says this, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The Messiah, the son of David, also has to be the son of God. And when you go back to the Davidic covenant in 1 Chronicles 17, 13, God says, I will be his father, he will be my son. And in the parallel passage in 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me. Now in the context that these were given, the assumption was that God would, as it were, adopt David's son. You know that the that the king wouldn't be literally God's son, but that God would, as it were, adopt him as his son. The, the fulfillment's greater even than that, of course, because we know Jesus comes to earth not just as the son of David physically, which he is, but also as God the son. So in Matthew 3.17, when Matthew says, records the words from heaven, this is my son, God is saying, this is the king from Psalm 2, And this is the son of David from 1 Chronicles 17 and 2 Samuel 7. The son of David has to be both a literal descendant of David and he also has to be, at least in an adoptive sense, he also has to be the son of God. So when Jesus starts his ministry, God claims Jesus as his son. We know that as, in a sense, both adoptive and literally as God the son. Later on in Matthew... Uh, You remember John the Baptist was Jesus' forerunner and he was proclaiming the way for Jesus to come, fulfillment of Malachi. And John is thrown in prison. And, you know, he had said Jesus was the Messiah. He was the one Israel was waiting for. But then he gets thrown in prison and he's he's kind of having second guesses about was I really right? Uh, Are you the one? And so while he's in prison, he sends his messengers to Jesus and says, Are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus says this, Go and report to John, Matthew 11, 4, What you hear and see, the blind receive sight, lame walk, 
Lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. When John says, or when John says, are you the one we wait for? Are you the son of David? Are you the promised Messiah? Jesus quotes Isaiah 29, 35, and 61, which are all messianic prophecies about God's sent one, about the son of David and God's anointed king to Israel. So Jesus doesn't say, yes, I am, but he quotes Isaiah to say, I am the one that God said would come. I'm the promised king. I'm the son of David. Remember, on one hand, physically not an attractive person, Geographically, he comes from the wrong side of the tracks up there in the, the uh, despised area of uh, Galilee. But to John's query, he says, I am the one Isaiah said would come. Or think of Palm Sunday passages when Jesus goes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Matthew 21, verse 3 and on. The Lord has need of the donkey that the disciples take for Jesus to sit on. And in Matthew 21, 5, say to the daughter of Zion, Matthew says, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This is straight out of Zechariah 9, 9. The key being, though, this is the king that was coming. Zechariah said God would send the king as well. The king is the son of David, and here he is riding on a foal into Jerusalem. And I love this in Luke 18. Um, even... Uh, the blind could see who Jesus was. You know, Jesus says in the Gospels elsewhere, I came so that those who are blind can see and those who see will lose their sight. And in Luke 18, Jesus is approaching the city of Jericho and there's a blind man. Luke doesn't tell us, but Mark does. His name is Bartimaeus. Blind Bartimaeus sitting by the gates of the city and he hears from the crowd that it's Jesus of Nazareth coming by. And he's approaching uh, hearing the crowd going by, he inquires. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. He called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. They're embarrassed, I take it. But he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. When he says son of David, he's calling Jesus the promised Messiah, Savior, King, the one who was from the Davidic covenant the one God had said would come. Blind Bartimaeus says, I know who you are. You're the son of David. You're the one we've been waiting for. And of course, recognizing Jesus and asking for Jesus' mercy, he gets it and he gets his sight. But the blind man had eyes enough to see that Jesus was the son of David, the fulfillment of the covenant made to David. Last, Matthew 4 this is when, John, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody. Later on when he's in custody, he sends messengers. But right when he's taken into custody, it says in Matthew 4, verse 12, Jesus withdrew into Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And then Matthew tells us this is the reason. It was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, that is the area where the Gentiles lived. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light and those who were sitting in the land in the shadow of death upon them a light dawn. Matthew quotes Isaiah here just to say, hey, 
we were told by Isaiah that light would enter the Gentiles up in this region, and that's exactly where Jesus settled. So Jesus, this is a picture, more fulfillment. Jesus comes from this area. But of course, if you read the context from which this is pulled, you see that it has a lot more to say about this person from the land of Galilee in Isaiah 9, one of the best-known passages perhaps in the Old Testament, in the Christmas season at least. The rest of that passage goes on to say, A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And I just want you to hear these key phrases. No end to the increase of his government. The son of David will rule a kingdom that will never end. God had promised David. This one has the increase of government of peace that has no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, this one will sit on the throne of David and over David's kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So God makes a promise to David, just say in the 900s B.C., 200 years later, Isaiah sees the same son and now says almost the same things. This one that comes, this son that will be born, is also the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, and he's the one that will establish a kingdom that will reign forever. This is the rest of the passage Matthew doesn't quote in Matthew 4, but this is the context of the quote he gives us to say Jesus came from the right area. Besides that, the quote is that, This is the one who would fulfill the promise to David. The baby in the manger on Christmas morning was the son of David and was the king of Israel. And I think it's easy to overlook that. And it's this thing about mistaken identities too. You know, we come to the Christmas story as Christians and we say, yeah, we know, we know, we know. I don't think we know. He's cute and he's a baby. Or even as we looked at last week, he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins come this time by God's design to be rejected, to be offered a sacrifice for our sins, to atone for our sins, to bring redemption. He's still a redeemer, just not quite the way we were thinking. But that baby lying in the manger, he was the king of Israel. And he wasn't just the king of Israel, of course. He was the king of a kingdom and a throne that would never end. In T.H. White's story on Arthur, Adrian was nice enough to inform me, the title, The Once and Future King, you know, if you read it 30 years earlier, you forget a few of these details. The title, The Once and Future King, is because Merlin tells Arthur that he's going to die, but he'll come back in the future to rule England again. And I wonder if T.H. White, you guys probably know the Arthurian legend is a bit of a mixed knot and you've got various elements and various versions of all of it. I don't know if T.H. White was inspired by the biblical account, but in the story, Arthur is once a king, but he'll return and he'll be a future king. And this is exactly what you see in Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. He's a king once... But his method of delivery is first for our sins in the incarnation. But of course, he's a future king as well. And he's a king in the lineage. And from the perspective of Psalm 2, if you will, 
who's no laughing matter, who comes to rule the earth with a rod of iron. He's also pictured in Revelation 19. Verse 11, John says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. This is a white war horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true in righteousness. He judges and wages war. And that's what most kings in the days of David did. They were warrior kings. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. The armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, sharper than the one Arthur pulls from the stone, that he, with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This baby, this Christmas gift baby that we think of in the creches and in the manger, this is who the baby was. This is who the baby grows up to be. And we slight deity when we pretend Jesus is anything less than the son of David, the king of Israel, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's who he was in the manger. He was nothing less than that. It struck me as I was thinking about this, we live in the United States, you know, our whole history is democracy and republicanism. That is not the Republican Party, but a Republican form of governance. And, you know, the beauty of this was, especially coming from Europe and a monarchy in which, you know, there was oppression and revolutions in France in which there's incredible bloodshed, the founders of our country said, we want to disperse the centers of power so that no one person can accrue too much power and take our individual liberties away from us. And it's worked pretty well, and it's still a pretty good model. Uh, but you know what? Uh, in the end, democracy is not God's model of governance. A monarchy is God's model of governance. And when we think of bowing down to someone, if we think of the Brits bowing to a queen or king, we're kind of like, what's with that? It's just a person. They're just like us. They put their shoes on in the morning like I do. They go to the bathroom. They get old and they die, which is all true. But God's version of governance is not a, it's not a democracy. And it's not, we don't vote. God says, I have my king and I put him on my throne and he'll rule a kingdom that lasts forever. And that's the one we have to deal with this Christmas. That one in the manger, he's the king of all kings and he's the Lord of all lords. And let me just enjoin on you one thing for this Christmas. It's a busy time of year and we have all kinds of thoughts. We're trying to take care of all kinds of things. Let me just enjoin on you the one thing. If you do nothing else this Christmas, entertain no other thoughts this Christmas, accomplish nothing else this Christmas season, just do one thing and it's this. It's do what the wise men did and it's do what the king enjoins those of his subjects to do. You remember what the wise men did? After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, Matthew 2.11, his mother. They fell to the ground and they worshipped him. See, the wise men knew who he was. They, they didn't know all the implications. But they knew from the star and they knew from God that a king had been born in Israel. So when they go and they worship that little baby in the manger, he, he's in, it's poverty-stricken circumstances. 
despite the appearances, they don't mistake his identity. They know he's the king. And so they do what you did in those days to a king. They bowed down and they worshipped him. And Psalm 2 is a little sterner note, but it's the same invitation. Psalm 2 verse 10 and 11 and 12 say this, Therefore, O kings, and we could add, and those under king's authority, show discernment. That is, wise up, take a clue, worship the Lord with reverence. And the Lord is God's king, the one he's put on his throne. And rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the sun. Do homage, in your, if you have New American Standard, it might say, kiss the sun. But you know, sometimes if you see someone bow before a monarch, they might kiss their hand. It's a sign of submission, and that's the thought here. Do homage to the Son, that He not become angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. We serve a King who has come to redeem us and has died for the sins of the world on one hand, guys, and on the other, He's a King on a war horse who's coming with a rod of iron and a sword to judge the nations that otherwise reject His rule. And so Psalm 2 says, Do homage before you perish. And it ends with, how blessed are all who take refuge in Him. As all-powerful as He is, and not just as the Son of David biologically, but as God the Son, the Son of God, He has all power, and yet His invitation in the end is still the same, take refuge in Him. So this Christmas season, if you don't do anything else, when you see a crash, when you see the cards and the little glow baby in the manger... Remember that He is the Son of David. He's the Son of God. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And you and I are called to do nothing less this Christmas season and with the rest of our lives than to bow in worship and homage of Him. Father, how easy it is to be blinder than Bartimaeus, to see you in your works, to hear your words, and still to turn cold shoulders to you in the truth and the glory of your Son. Father, give us eyes to see, even eyes that the blind man had, who Jesus is, what he is. Father, help us to live circumspect lives as those who will render an account to our King and to our Lord. Father, help us to do homage to the Son, to embrace salvation offered freely through the Lord Jesus Christ who came first in the incarnation to be our sin-bearer, to deliver us from our sins and their penalty. But Lord, the one that we also wait for to come again, Lord, every time we pray, Your kingdom come, we're praying for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the establishment of His eternal throne and kingdom. Lord, help us to live now as those in that kingdom ruled by a benevolent king who's coming back one day. In Jesus' name, amen.